Well, as you are being seated, wow, so good to sing God's songs together, amen? Good to be reminded of who we are. We come to uh, this uh, time of worship uh, when we look into God's Word, and we've been marching here through the book of Ephesians, and as we have, it's been a rather remarkable journey. So uh, I was reminded as I was working on this sermon a couple weeks ago of a of a saying I heard years ago called throwing your hat over the wall. So I went looking, what is the origin of that saying to throw one's hat over the wall? Well, most people think it originated with JFK's grandfather. He would be walking home from school with friends in Ireland and um, those, those rock walls that were there, uh, they would dare him to climb the wall and he couldn't turn down a dare. And so what he would do is take his hat, which was part of his uniform, throw that hat over the wall, and by that saying, I have no choice but to go get it. And then he would climb the wall, grab his hat, and come back. When Paul gets to this part of Ephesians chapter 6, he says, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord. He calls us to throw our hats over the wall. He calls us to a commitment of strength. Yet even the way he describes it tells us something about what kind of strength it is and why it is that you and I must be, have to be strong. And so this morning, we'll just walk through this text as Paul has written it with three simple truths. Be strong, how you can be strong, and why you must be strong. Let's just look at it. Be, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord. That word be strong means it is a passive verb, a passive command. You might think of the word empowered. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The power then doesn't come from you. It is another power source that comes through you. That's the meaning of of the word. It's a fascinating phrase, and in the strength of his might. When you think of this power, think of this little gland that sits on top of the kidney. It's called the adrenal gland. Maybe you've watched the news and you've seen where somebody is able to do a superhuman feat in in a, a crisis. They come into a crisis and perhaps they're able to lift a, a car that they should in no way be able to lift. They can do this superhuman thing. Well, doctors say it's this adrenal gland that pushes out the adrenaline that goes into the body that activates uh, the blood pressure in a way and things happen in the muscles so much so that this superhuman strength for that small period of time is uh, put to use to save someone's life or to keep them from further injury. 
so it is with the power that God gives. It is not an external thing that we go after and try to grab as if it is somewhere out there. It is indeed inside us. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Therein lies the power. Look back at 19 and 20 of Ephesians 1 because there are three words in Ephesians 6 that are also found in 1, 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. If you look at the description of the power in 119 through 20, and you look at the words in chapter 6, these three words show up both places, strong, strength, and might. What does this say to us? What does this say to us? It says to us that the same power, look at this, that he worked when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places in Christ, that same power is in you. If you belong to Christ at the moment of conversion, you were given the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in you. Perhaps it has never occurred to you that when Jesus died and when Jesus was in the tomb, that Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead. And if he depended on the Spirit to raise him from the dead, how much more are you and I dependent on the Spirit to raise us from the death of our old life in Christ, uh, before Christ? We must get to a place where we say, I can't, God can. We must get to a place where we say repeatedly, I can't, God can. So when we get to that place, God's power begins to work. We, in a sense, free him to work in us. Notice what happens in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. God raised Jesus up from the dead and raised him up into glory through the ascension to where that he is seated at the right hand of God. Can I say something to us this morning? The Holy Spirit is working always in an upward motion. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? What I mean is this, is that when God's Spirit begins to do His work in you and begins to do His work through you, He will raise you up from your former life, up from your problem of sin, up from your problem of lust, up from your problem of greed, up from whatever it is to the place where he wants you to be, and you will constantly, as you walk with him, be lifted up and up and up and up. That is his work. His work is to know where you are now and to bring you to where he's called you to be. The Holy Spirit's work in you is a constant work of lifting up, a constant work of raising up, a constant work of forming you and shaping you into the character of Christ. 
Second Peter 1.3 says his, God's divine power, has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has given you every single thing you need. So we are told to be strong, and it means to be empowered from within, not from without. But the question comes, how? How you're strengthened. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now the phrase put on is simple. It's just what you would say, get your clothes on. Right? Put on clothes. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The whole armor of God, all of it. Now, I learned something that honestly never knew until a couple weeks ago when I'm preparing this text. I've always thought of this objective armor of God, these, this metaphor, right, for the different pieces, different parts as a gift of to us. I've always thought of that, and indeed it is. But what I discovered in my study is that Paul did not originate this idea. Paul grabs this from Isaiah. In about three places, I'll share two of them with you. Isaiah 11, 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 11, 5. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, God not only provides the armor, God himself wears it. I think it is in Isaiah 52. I don't have it here. No, in Isaiah 59, where God is depicted as wearing the breastplate of righteousness. All right, now, look at verses 14 through 17. And for a moment, take away the metaphor and think on what the pieces of the armor represent. Here they are, truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, Faith, salvation, and word of God. Those are listed in 14 through 17. Now, if you look at 52, verse 7, what do you discover there? Good news, peace, happiness, salvation. You look at 11, you see faithfulness, and you see righteousness. God himself wears the, the armor he has given us to wear. You are strengthened, but what is it that strengthens you? You must put on what God wears. Back to Second Peter. His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own 
glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become, look at this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful or evil desire. So you, when you come to God by faith in Christ, receive such power so as to receive the very armor of God, or as Peter calls it, his very divine nature. You become like Christ. All right, so how do we practically do this? We have something that you can pick up And I think I have one up here with me that you can pick up as you leave. So here's what I'm convinced. That putting on the armor of God isn't the militant kind of idea we've had for many years. Putting on the armor of God is knowing who you are in Christ. Who are you? If you belong to Christ, who are you? J.D. Greer in his book Gospel shares a gospel prayer that he says he prays every day. We share these, maybe Father's Day, I can't remember, but we still have, we, we gave them all out, we have more, and so they're available for you today. If you do not already have what some call a prayer of recollection, where you recall who you are in Christ, this is your source. What does it say? There is nothing I've done that could make you love me less and nothing I could do that would make you love me more. That is who you are in Christ. You are all I need for everlasting joy. That is who you are in Christ. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. That is who you are in Christ. As I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. Now, what I want to say to you is that putting on the armor, let's lose the metaphors for a moment, and all that's been said and done about them and the righteousness covering the heart and the helmet, we'll get to all of that next week. But let's look at what the armor is. It is your identity in Christ. Tim Keller puts all of this in one statement, and perhaps one statement is sufficient for you. He says, I am so sinful Jesus had to die for me, so loved he was glad to die for me. What I'm saying to you this morning is that When you forget these things, you are susceptible to the attacks of the, the enemy. That's what I'm saying. Is that forgetting who you are in Christ opens you up to all kinds of schemes of the devil, and that gets to why. Why you need strength. We are called to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
the schemes. That word means slanderer. The, the, the devil is a liar. Jesus said of him uh, to others talking about the devil, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not, interesting word here, stand in the truth. He does not stand in the truth. What are we told to do by Paul in Ephesians 6? Stand in what? The truth. Stand in who you are in Christ. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So to be like Satan is to not stand in the truth. To be like Christ is to stand in the truth of who you are. That's what Paul says. Now, these schemes are plural. It means they come repeatedly. It means that they come in all kinds of varieties. Satan has a whole smorgasbord of ways that he will come against you. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. Alan Michael, I want to pause for a moment and just talk to you as I did in the early service. The reality of those who serve God by a call to full-time vocational Christian ministry is that we fight not against earthly things, but against the schemes of the devil against his lies. I would say to you, at the core of your ministry, to, to kids here at Grace and to parents and to young adults here at Grace, must be a grip of the gospel, and you must be gripped by that same gospel. At the core of who you are must be your identity, not bound up in your performance, not bound up in your ability, not bound up in any oratory skill that you may possess, not bound up in your leadership acumen. It must be bound up in the truth of the gospel. Why? Because Satan can cleverly pick apart your oratory ability. He can cleverly acumen, but he can never come against the truth of who you are in Christ. And when you live in light of that truth, when you pastor in light of that truth, when you serve in light of that truth, there is a strength and a sustainability to your ministry that can only be accomplished as one who does. And so I would say that to all of us. As you FCA leaders head into camp this week and you will encounter students that you will meet perhaps for the very first time tomorrow when they roll into your camp, you cannot. You cannot rely on your ability, your athletic ability, your career, these things that these students most likely will look up to you for because you've done this in college or that in college and they admire this or admire that about you. At some point, that falls apart. But there is the reality of the truth of the gospel that if you live and model over the next five days a gospel-centered life, 
life. It cannot be destroyed. I would encourage all of us with that. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul intentionally uses the word wrestle here. Wrestling is hand-to-hand, person-to-person, close contact fighting. That is the reality of the war. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against personal demonic intelligences. You say, what do you mean? Demons are fallen angels who do the bidding of Satan, their commander-in-chief. My father pastored for many years, did revival services in many places. Years ago, as a young lad, I was with him down just east of here in a little place called Hildebrand, right off the interstate, Dad was preaching. That night, I don't know if he was into his sermon yet or not, I can't remember, but I do remember that the side door of that little church opened. It was a small space, and the side door opened, and when it did, uh, someone came with a woman with them, They had discovered her out on the interstate, getting ready to jump to her death to end her life. There was no fanfare to anything Dad did, nothing extraordinary. He simply spoke to everyone in that little congregation that night, and he said to us, if uh, any of you doesn't know Christ, I, I would recommend that you leave. It's a surprising thing to say. Well, it occurred to me, I rode with him. I had no choice but to stay. (laughs) And so I sat there as a young elementary-aged kid, maybe fourth, fifth grade, as I recall, and sat there. And then my dad began to speak to this woman, and she answered him, but it was not a woman's voice at all. It was a deep, guttural voice. As she answered my father, Dad did nothing just weird or crazy. There was nothing like that at all. He simply began to pray. I confess to you, as I did the early service, that I had my eyes open, seeing what was going on. All Dad did was to pray. And I watched this woman's body just lose its tenseness Dad finished. He spoke to her again, and when he did, she answered him, now in her voice. The demon that lived in her for whatever reason was gone. They helped her up, and she sat through the rest of that service that night. Ah. Demonic intelligences are real. 
John Stott says, he describes Satan and his demons as powerful. Though they are defeated, they refuse to concede defeat. They are wicked. The arrival of Jesus, he believes, signaled an unprecedented outburst from Satan as he dispatched demons as he never had before. And they are cunning. The devil seldom attacks openly, preferring darkness to light. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great pastor, once medical doctor who became pastor in England, says, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and thinking. We are ignorant of this great objective fact the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. So what do you do? You take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What is the evil day? Much has been made of that phrase. I would say it, it's two things. It's any day if you're a follower of Jesus. The days are evil. The news is tough, isn't it? These are evil days. We need not pretend they're not. But I would also say that evil days come. The cancer diagnosis is an evil day. The unexpected divorce announcement is an evil day. Perhaps the evil day is brought on by, by sin that you commit. What do you do in the evil day? Day. You put on the armor, you stand in the truth of who you are in the evil day. Yesterday I was at First United Methodist Church for a funeral. Jim Hensley had died, very successful businessman great father of only one daughter, Heather, born late to him and his wife and only one granddaughter, Kaylin. Heather stood to speak as the only daughter of her father and of his legacy. When she finished speaking, or as she was speaking, she spoke as you would expect her to of his love for them and the things they had done together and the joy of being his daughter. And then about two-thirds of the way through, she stood in a large room full of people and said, I must say to you today that I stand here because Jesus Christ 
died for me on the cross and he died for my daddy on the cross and he rose from the dead and because he did I have hope I was holding Wendy's hand just squeezing it during that time yes she's standing in the gospel she's standing in the truth in this evil day of death and destruction Heather stands there robed in the armor of who she is in Christ and whose she is and I would say to you there will come an evil day in your life when your methods will not work and when your needs will not be met by anything that you can do and the one thing you can do in that day is to stand in the truth of who you are in Christ amen that is the one thing you can do everything else will fail you but I promise you that Satan cannot come against Christ in you who is the hope of glory he is no match for Jesus Christ He is no match for him. And there will come that day when you will face the difficulties of life, the unexpected news, the tragedies that that comprise life as we know it. But there is a God who has outfitted you with truth. And that truth is that you belong to him, that you are his, that you are redeemed as we sang, that you are saved, that you are covered, that you are loved, that you have a hope and a future and he has not nor ever will abandon that he never will that is the hope of who we have in Christ Honer in his great commentary on Ephesians says this this is about a victory or defeat it is about holding fast to territory already won by Christ amen I'm not asking you to go uh, pioneer someplace you've never been. I'm just saying hang out and where you are. Be who you are. Live in the truth of who you are. Well, I got carried away. I need to calm down. <laughs> this is an ordination service after all. Um, Alan, Michael, and Bethany, would you come here and, and would you stand just down front, uh, please, and If you'll grab that chair and bring it over, that would be good, too. We'll use that in just a moment. I'll give a charge to Alan Michael, and then I will give a charge to you, uh, the church. Alan Michael serves here in our kids' ministry and our young adult ministry. Uh, Came to us years ago as a student uh, from Montreat College and uh, attended here in churches four years and then came on as an intern And then from an intern, went back to Tennessee and came back on staff a little more than four years ago. Little did I know uh, those many years ago that you would be here and God would, uh, would lead you in this way. And you would marry a most amazing young woman uh, in Bethany. God is good. He really is. Uh, The charge to you, Alan Michael, is this. Do you vow to preach and teach the Scripture as the inerrant and inspired Word of God, always giving it authority over all authority? Do you vow to be consistent in your study of the Word of God, showing yourself approved and a workman unto God? Do you vow to maintain your beliefs in the Baptist doctrine you affirm during your ordination council meetings? 
Do you vow to live up to the qualifications of a pastor found in 1 Timothy and in Titus? Do you vow to not only encourage and train those that you serve here to witness, but you will be a witness by sharing the gospel yourself to unbelievers? Do you vow not to neglect your family and to love your wife as Christ loved the church? If so, please say, I do. And then to you as church, this is a charge to you, to you as Alan Michael's home church and the church in which he serves, vow to pray for him as he continues to serve God here in ministry at Grace. Do you vow to honor Alan Michael with the respect and support that is fitting to the office of an ordained pastor in accordance with 1 Timothy 3? Do you vow to respect Alan Michael's time with his family? Do you vow to recognize Alan Michael as a shepherd and overseer of your lives as he has been called by God to be so? If so, and with conviction, please say, we do. One of the things, Alan Michael, that I do is to go into my library um, for every, every man we ordain to Christian ministry and, um, and give a book. And so, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a nerd about my books. So this is a deep love gift. The book I want to give to you is by Arthur Pearson. Arthur Pearson is not incredibly known, but was incredibly effective for the kingdom. Pearson, born in the 1800s, mid-1800s, he uh, was a great orator, and he became pastor of a great church in Detroit, a Presbyterian church in Detroit, and discovered that that wasn't the place for him. He left that esteemed pulpit to go to a lesser-known Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, Bethany Presbyterian. And there, at that church, did remarkable work in the community. That church loved the urban poor, and they did ministry all over the city of Philadelphia. Young people flocked to Bethany Presbyterian and Pearson loved them and began to mentor them. And something we study, you've studied in seminary, is the student volunteer movement, a remarkable missions movement that began at the hands of Arthur Pearson. That mission continued to, to, to help things like the China Inland Mission and other works like that. Pearson uh, would travel from Philadelphia across the water to England. Just as an itinerant preacher, he met Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who by 1888 had become quite ill and had to step down from the pulpit of the great Metropolitan Tabernacle. When Pearson, uh, when Spurgeon stepped down, it was Pearson who stepped into that pulpit to preach as the interim following that great man of God. Pearson did that for some period of time, not long, but Spurgeon did many things that many people aren't aware of. 
One was a pastor's college. It was a mentoring group of young pastors that he invested quite a bit of time in. He was also unable to do that. Pearson would step in in 1888 and deliver those lectures to those young pastoral candidates. This is his book called The Divine Art of Preaching, which is a compilation of those lectures to those young students. This was published in 1892, and this indeed is an 1892 copy of that. And so I have uh, inserted a note because it would be a crime to write in this book. Remember that. Um, <laughs> and I give this to you as not only my friend and staff member, but as a son in the faith. I love you dearly, and I love you, Bethany. Here you go. Yes, sir. There are two other things that we give that are symbolic in nature of what it is that God has called you to do. The word pastor means shepherd, and God has called you to shepherd the sheep. And so this shepherd's crook is to be put in a prominent place, a place where you will see and remember that indeed, while there are many competing notions in our culture today for what a pastor is, the biblical mandate remains, shepherd the sheep, shepherd the flock. That's what this is for. And then there is this. This um, is a simple polishing cloth. That's, that's all it is. It's intended to polish shoes. I will say to you that Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took a towel in a basin and washed the disciples' feet. They were dirty feet. In my 18, almost 19 years here, God has given me the privilege, and I use that word intentionally, of washing people's dirty feet. Life has made their feet dirty. They sit in my office and often in tears share their own disappointments and pain and struggle. This is to remind you that they do not serve you, but you serve them. You are to serve them. You are to wash their feet. And I can tell you that sometimes it will be with your tears that you will wake up in the middle of the night and they, they will be the first person on your mind because you wonder where they are. Are they listening? Are they okay? These two things are symbolic of the work to which God has called you. And we offer those to you for that. If you'll be seated here, and Bethany, I'll take that book, and if you'll stand behind him. Alan Michael, you're seated in a sense of humility before these people, and Bethany, you stand in a show of support. We're going to have an opportunity. I know many of you don't know Alan Michael uh, or Bethany. I want to ask you, if you don't, would be 
perhaps awkward for you to come and speak, but you can pray where you are for them. You're welcome to come. But in this room are some special ordained people in your life. Uh, your father, who is a pastor, would you come? Your father, who is a pastor, would you come? I think your cousin is here, who is a pastor. Would you come? I think I covered all the pastors in your family with this. Baptist, Presbyterian, and Methodist uh, we have up here. And I know there are other ordained pastors and elders. Jay, I think you are. Would you come? And others in the room, if you are an ordained pastor or elder, would you come now? And you will begin our time, and then any of you can follow. We'll work this way and uh, uh, go down that way. So you can come and just stand behind Jay. Wayne, if you'll come right on around and just stand behind Jay. If you men will come this way as well, Bill. Uh, and you can stand right here. Yeah, just come on this side. And that will have just a bit of uh, decorum here. It'll move. What is the point of this time? The point of this time is simply words of blessing and encouragement. They don't have to be long and lengthy, but, but gracious and good. Dave will play softly on the guitar. Others of you, feel free to join in. Uh, you don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be ordained. You're in the family of God. You're welcome to come and bless him. Bill, you can start.